The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning. For those of you who maybe didn't catch it or don't know or are unfamiliar, uh, my name is Jeremy, and I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. We are going to be in Genesis chapter 8, the last part of Genesis chapter 8 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, uh, would you open up to Genesis chapter 8 where we'll begin by reading our text for today. <clears throat> we'll pick up in Genesis chapter 8 beginning at verse 20. Notice how I slowed down my speech for everybody who's still working their thumbs on their phone and flipping pages. Genesis chapter 8 verse 20 Starting out, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all of the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered." Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, from man and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the field with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you, for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your text, we come to the scriptures today. We recognize our own weaknesses. God, we all come with our own predetermined values, things that are a part of our family upbringing and a part of our culture, our own ideas about what truth is. And yet your word stands outside of time. It is from an eternal perspective. You tell us the way that things actually are. This morning, let your word become a part of the foundation of the logic with which we think. God, let your truth win out in our souls. God, I confess my own weakness as a communicator, knowing that there is much that I want to say. God, I ask that you would give simplicity to my speech and keep me from meandering down things and trails that don't need to be gone down. May your word rise as preeminent, not my thoughts. May your nature and your character be fully revealed to those who've gathered in your name. So God, have your way in our time and use it for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. So Genesis chapter 8, going into chapter 9 through verse 17 there, is what is often referred to as the Noahic Covenant. For those of you who are note takers and people who like to kind of organize their thoughts, I want to give you some, an outline to follow. Again, these are just sort of thought file folders. They help you to sort of categorize the things that I'm going to talk about. So first of all, we have Noah's worship in verses, verse 20 of chapter 8. Then Noah, or God's heart in chapter 8, verses 21 to 22. And then God's blessing in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and God's covenant in chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. Noah's worship, God's heart, God's blessing, and God's covenant. You know, the New Testament author of Hebrews says this. He says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. When I was in third grade, I I had uh, this horse named Burgundy. Now, Burgundy was an Arab horse and was much, much older, um, and she was very, very gentle uh, as a result of her age. 
Many times for us kids, uh, we wouldn't even put a saddle on her. We could just hold on to the, the mane near the withers. Or we would string hay twine into her halter, you know, the little loops on the sides of, of the halter. We would tie hay twine in there and then wrap it around. And, and we could take her all over the property. And I lived in O'Brien in a, a really small town outside of Cave Junction. So Cave Junction is small, right? And Kirby is small. O'Brien's even smaller than Kirby. Kirby and Wonder are like sister cities, right? So I, I lived in, uh, excuse me, Kirby, Wonder, and O'Brien, excuse me, are uh, sister cities. But I lived in O'Brien, a really small town. Perhaps you've seen it on the way to the coast. There's a giant fly sitting over the restroom. It's a weird thing. I don't know why that that's there, but that's O'Brien. My roots. Well, uh, because Burgundy was so gentle, we thought nothing of the immense power that Burgundy actually had. Uh, as an animal, as a great beast, she possessed tremendous power, and, and we never even really gave a thought to it because she was just such a gentle horse. On one occasion, I was riding Burgundy through some trails that we regularly took around our, our house and around our neighborhood. And I was only in the third grade at that time, and fortunately, we had a saddle on her, and... Uh, and I, w- I was sitting on top of something other than just riding her bareback. But something spooked her. And she reared, began bucking, and then all of a sudden just took off. And was determined, I was doing everything that I knew as a, as a young kid, to try and rein her back. But it was to no avail. I'm in the third grade. The basically, by the time it was done, we're going Mach 1 through the trees. And I, all I could do is hold on to the horn of the saddle, right? I was completely freaked out. We were running at breakneck speed. I, and I didn't really realize as a third grader how little control I actually had over this beast. Our relationship was really based upon trust. I yanked the reins, I yelled, I kicked with my heels, but she was dead set on running until every ounce of fear was gone. All I could do was hang on and hope that I didn't get scraped off by a tree, thrown to the ground, bucked off on a rock, stomped. When she finally calmed down, I was able to, to get her reined in and get her back to the house. Fortunately, I had stayed in the saddle thanks to that trusty saddle horn that was sitting right in front of me. We made our way back. I got off of Burgundy, and to be real honest, I didn't want to ride Burgundy ever again. It, it, just, it soured our relationship. <laughs> I found myself uh, in awe of Burgundy's power. The knowledge I had gained of how powerful she actually was had forever changed my perspective of the risk that was inherent in our relationship. Burgundy, my pet, my friend, could easily kill me. And I was made aware of that on that day. Here in our story... I think we have something similar that is taking place. Noah has just spent a year on a boat 
as he emerges from the ark, the absolute devastation around him is a reminder of God's power. There may be something of the experience of Noah and his family that is reminiscent of my experience with Burgundy. On the one hand is the awareness that God had saved them all and was indeed incredibly loving. He was a wonderful Savior. And on the other hand was the fearful realization that God was powerful. They could look all around them at the devastation that the flood had caused what it had wrought on the earth, and see the absolute authority of God over all things. From the mud that covered the rocks around them, the vegetation that had been decimated, to the absolutely devastating loss of human and animal life, the evidence of God's power was all around them. And how stark the contrast to see both the goodness and the severity of God as they left the ark. How full of awe they must have been at the God who on the one hand saved them and then on the other hand to recognize that he, what he ultimately saved them from was himself. He saved them from himself. He had spared this family his own awesome and terrifying wrath. That's the reality. And in this moment of seeing God for who he really is, Noah is moved. He is, he is moved to worship. Verse 20 tells us that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and every clean bird. These are, these are creatures that are fit for sacrificial worship. And he offered them as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, a burnt offering was a unique offering. In the Levitical system, a burnt offering was an offering that was wholly consumed by fire. Every ounce of the animal was dedicated unto the Lord. Now, at the heart of Noah's worship at this moment is not just a friendly desire to show love and appreciation. It is a combination of a profound awareness of the worthiness of God and an absolute reverence for him. Noah responds by giving to God something that was extremely precious in the moment. What was it? It was the life of some of the only surviving creatures on the earth. This is something that God had provided for when he told Noah to bring extra clean animals onto the ark in chapter 7. But now that the devastation of the earth can be clearly seen, Noah is essentially acting in faith. He's saying, okay, even though we only have, you know, so many of these animals, by offering these animals to you, I am trusting you 
that you will still repopulate the earth, that you will still do what you promised to do in preserving life. Noah is acting in faith. He has to trust that God will still bless and repopulate the earth with the remaining animals. And by following through with this sacrifice, Noah's obedience to God and faith in God are united in this one act of worship to the Lord as he offers wholly, fully a burnt offering of animal sacrifice unto God. I think there's application in there for you and me. You know, in the life of the church, we're, we're called to worship God and express the worth of who he is. Now, sometimes this can fall into routine. At other times, we, we become profoundly aware of God's goodness or of his holiness. And in my experience, some of the most profound moments of authentic worship come from seeing the grace of God in acting on our behalf, or, or, or sometimes it's the severity of God as he is dispensing his justice. You see, this is why I think baptism and communion can be such profound moments of encounter with God. We're seeing both the salvation of God on one hand in the person who's being baptized or as we come to the elements of the table. But at the same time, we're also seeing the justice of God being poured out upon his own son. And and through what God did through his son, he is saving us from his own righteous and holy wrath. His own holiness, his own justice. This is why confessing our sin to God can stir such a profound response of worship in us. It is in the moments where we bring our sin to God and we find that he has placed us in the good ship salvation. He's rescued us from his wrath. We see the the severity of his willingness to judge our sin displayed upon his son and the forgiveness that comes to us. And at the same time, we're overwhelmed by the fact that why would God do this for me? How could he do this? How could he love me like this? Sometimes it's at the end of a trial that true and authentic and deep worship ascends. It's when the floodwaters recede that we often become aware of how faithful God has been to us. It's after a long season of labor and faithful obedience where we've wondered if the investment that we have made is worth it, that that God comes through and we're overwhelmed by how amazing God actually is. We we waited and we labored like like Noah in the ark for, for years sometimes, just waiting for God to complete his promise, trusting wholly upon the promises of God. We stayed faithful in that difficult marriage. We walked out that difficult circumstance and trial. We submitted our cares in the seasons of difficulty that we faced. And then when God finally does what we trusted him to do, we are overwhelmed with the reality of his wisdom and of his goodness and his specific and personal care for us. And here's what I want us to see. 
Worship is not conjuring up emotion. Worship is seeing God with clarity. Worship is not conjuring up emotion. Like when we're out here and we're singing songs to God, the goal is not for us to like have some emotional experience. That's not the goal. The, the goal is for us to see God as he is. To see him in his holiness. To see him in his worth. To see him in his value. And all of a sudden be overwhelmed with the reality of who God is. And our hearts respond in that moment in worship. And it can be emotional. That's true. But the emotions are responding to something that we know about God, something that we see about his character, some aspect of his, his personal love. It's the awareness of a God so holy that if he were to reveal himself in his fullness in our presence, right now we would perish. We couldn't take it. And it's also the awareness of a God so loving that he would make us holy through the death of his son. That's incredible love. God offered his life for ours. He saved us from his own wrath. Well, after seeing Noah's heart towards God in verse 20, we also see God's heart in response. God's heart. Verses 21 and 22. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because... For the intention of man... Excuse me. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So here we see God's heart. When Noah offers this worship to God, he responds. Now notice the wording here. And when, when God smelled this pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart. Did you catch that? God is having a private conversation with himself, and, and we're let into the inner workings of this dialogue within the Trinity. God says in his heart, and, and, and the writer of the book of Genesis tells us what was in this thing that God said in his heart. Now, it's interesting here. As Christians, we believe that God is immutable. This, this means that God is unchanging. He's not growing in his wisdom or having new experiences. And this is an important doctrine to know and to understand because the unchanging nature of God is what guarantees that God will not change his mind in the future. It's what makes him dependable. So this, this term here, immutable, means unchanging over time or unable to be changed. God is immutable. This is a core doctrine of the Christian faith. Now, having said that, though, God is immutable, he's unchangeable, but he is affectable. Affectable. His heart is stirred by the affections of his creatures. 
His heart is moved to compassion. God is affected by our suffering and the things that we go through. God is angered by the rebellion of his people. He's hurt and wounded by the rebellion of his people. Listen to the way he talks about it among the prophets. He, he talks about it as though it was like a marital betrayal. This is a huge deal. It's worth noting here that God is affected by what has taken place on the earth. Notice that the text says that the smell of the, off, of the offering was pleasing to the Lord. Now, the rest of the Bible makes it clear that it's not the smell that makes the offering sweet, but the, the heart of the worshiper that makes the offering sweet. It's, it's similar to the way that a barbecue works for you and I. Like, sometimes I'll come home from uh, work, and somebody in my neighborhood is barbecuing. You know that time of the year, right? And that, you have that one neighbor that you're just like, oh, man, they're barbecuing again right? The smell just kind of comes wafting through the house. And immediately what comes to mind, yes, the tasty treats that are being flame broiled over a nice grill. Yes, that is definitely what comes to mind. But also what comes to mind is the whole experience, right? Of like the, a lovingly prepared meal, sitting down with family and friends and everybody's like salivated. We've been smelling the smoke coming off of this thing for, for hours and hours, right? Just waiting for it to be done. Is it done yet? Is it done yet? Finally, this crusty, barbecued, glazed, like beautiful piece of meat is stuck right in front of us. We begin to slice into it. The tender, juicy like juices begin flowing out from it. And in my mind all of those experiences are coming to bear in the moment where I smell my neighbor down the street lighting up his barbecue. You see, it is the careful love of the cook that has gone into the meal. It is the gathering of the family around the table. It's the joy of sharing the food that was specially prepared. It's the delight of the senses in the space that the barbecue creates with friends that gives the barbecue its meaning and makes it so appealing. The smell is what stirs the heart. And in the same way, the smell of the offering that comes up to the Lord in the smoke rising from the altar, it's not that God is, you know, really into essential oils or, you know, those kinds of things. Essential oil. By the way, barbecue essential oil. I just thought of that. <laughs> that is a million-dollar idea right there. Every, every guy is just like, I'm, I'm really into this essential oil thing. <laughs> Look, here, here is the situation. God smells this fragrance coming up, and he is reminded of the heart with which this offering is given. 
God receives Noah's worship and begins to ponder his dealings with man. God is also aware of the devastation of his judgment upon the earth. God is internalizing about the nature of man's fallen condition. And notice how he describes man's sinfulness. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I strike down every living creature as I have done. God knows that the sin problem is not going away. It's here to stay. Even in, even in starting fresh with Noah, sin is still present. The propensity to sin is still going to cause hardship on the earth. But God says in this moment, he says, even though I know sin is going to still be present in the earth, I will never again curse the ground because of man's sin. Remember, curse the ground like he did with Adam in the garden? Remember that? Like he did in the flood that just happened? He says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to curse the earth as a result of man's sin. Now, God knows that the sin problem will still be here, but he says, while the earth remains. Did you see that little phrase? While the earth remains. This is a way of saying until the very end, I will demonstrate my grace, my patience, my faithfulness by withholding my judgment on a global scale until the time of the final judgment of the earth. It says until that time, until while the earth remains until that time, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And from this point, God is, begin to, is going to begin to speak directly to Noah and his family and give them a blessing. But he wants, the author wants us to know, the reader, that God is thinking about the reality of the devastation of the flood. He goes, okay. I hate this too. I don't like this either. And the sin problem is not going away. And, and probably what's going to happen is in future generations, more and more sin is going to erupt. And it's going to look really, really ugly. But I'm, I'm not doing it this way again. Until the end, until the new heavens, the new earth, the final judgment, until the end of days, I'm never going to judge the entire planet in this same way. Now, God had already stated in chapter 6, verse 18, that he was going to make a covenant with Noah. So, inserted at the beginning of the covenant, though, is a blessing. And this is where we see God's blessing in verses 1 through 8. God's blessing. So, let's go through that fairly quickly, but I want to mention a few things here. In verse 1, he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is interesting for many reasons, but the most significant reason is that God is reestablishing the Edenic command to be fruitful and multiply. This is what was given in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. You'll remember that. And, and here is essentially what is happening. In a very real sense, Noah and his family are a new beginning for the earth. 
They're, they're a do-over. They're a start-over. They're a reset on the planet. And this is a new chapter for God's redemptive plan at work. They're stepping off the ark into a, a new world, a fresh start of creatures, and God is starting over with them the way that he started over with Adam and Eve in the garden. This is a new beginning. And then in verse 2, he says, The dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. So now there are three basic dangers, and they're, they're very rational fears that Noah and his family will face as they begin to rebuild the planet, as they repopulate and re, uh, <clears throat> resettle the earth. There's, there's three major dangers and rational fears that they have. First one is the danger from nature, Right? That is, the animals could cause them harm. Or then, then there's the flip side of that, right? They could wipe out the animals completely, and then there's no life. Then there's danger from one another. Remember, before the flood, the world was filled with violence, and no doubt it will be a factor again after the flood. So they, they, they could kill one another, and then next thing you know, the planet is not doing well. You remember the very first family, Adam and Eve? Within one generation, what happened? Cain killed Abel, right? Reduced the world's population by 25% with one fell swoop. So that's a very real danger. The third real danger is a danger from God. It doesn't take but just a few minutes to look around at the devastation of the earth to realize the holiness of God will compel him to deal justly and thoroughly with the sinfulness of man. So what God is about to do is deal with each of these fears. He, he deals with the danger from nature in verses 2 through 4. He deals with the danger from one another in verses 5 through 7, and the danger from God in the making of the covenant at the end uh, of the portion that we read in verses 8 through 17. So God starts by putting fear in the heart of animals towards humans. One, for our protection, but two, for their protection, because mankind is now commanded to eat meat. Notice in verse 3, he says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So God now institutes the eating of animals. Apparently, this was not common practice before the flood because he gives a direct command for this to happen. Now, no doubt there is a shortage of food and a difference in the world that was before the flood and the world that is now after the flood. Which means that God gives this command to eat meat as a part of his provision for Adam and Eve. And, and, and tucked away in that is, is also this reality that, that kind of like the, the skins that were taken from animals to cover uh, Adam and Eve. It's the acknowledgement that in order for me to live, something else has to die. You ever think about that? Every time you have a burger? Every time you think about, you know, getting wings? You know, in order for me to live... Something else has to give up its life. It's built into the fabric of our existence that this is a reality. 
And so God says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And, and then he gives this stipulation in verse 4. When he says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You know, in, na- in ancient Near Eastern cultures, a person could clearly see that a person and animal would die without blood. Like you could hit them in the head. They don't necessarily need to bleed in order to die. And in a wide range of ancient Near Eastern cultures, the consumption of blood from a living animal was a means of appropriating the life force of one's victim and perhaps even its attributes. And this prohibition where God says, no, you can't eat the blood that is in the animal, you can't drink that blood, is, is a part of, I think, God saying, no, th- this, is, this is my te- territory. I, I ran into this actually while I was in Vanuatu. Um, in, in Vanuatu, yeah, uh, only about 40, 40 years ago, they were still cannibalistic. They would still eat people. And I actually, I ran into a cannibal when we were on one of our missions excursions. He was an older guy, and, um, and Dan, the guy I was with, said, hey, you know, you should talk to this guy. He was a cannibal. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, okay. So I uh, go and, and chat with him. I'm like, hey, how's it going? And Dan starts asking him questions about being a cannibal. He's like, have you ever ate, um, you know, a, a, a child? He goes, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And it, I read an old person? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like, okay. And then Dan asked the one question, which I think was totally forbidden, which is, which one is better? Right? And he, and he said the kid. That's what he said. But now, you might think that it's for food, right? But it's not. In their culture, from that understanding, for them to eat Another person was to absorb the essence of what that person was and gain their power and add their power, if you will, to your own existence. That's the idea. And God's like, I, I, don't, want you, I don't want you even going down that road. I want you to honor the life that you take. The life is in its blood. Honor the life that you take. Don't get involved in this. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the book of Genesis from the series Preaching the Word says this, humans are not to devour animals the way animals devour one another while the blood is pulsing in the flesh. The reason for this is the respect for life. And beyond that, the respect for the giver of life. Life is in the blood and God is the giver of life. Disregard for the gift of life is an affront to the giver of life. This divine prohibition against eating Blood also prepared the use of blood in the sacrificial system because belonging to God, it could be seen as an atoning gift to sinners and not their works being offered to him because life comes from God by spilling the blood of something else. It's God's gift to us rather than our gift to God. See how that works? The importance of the idea of blood in the, in the Bible is shown by how often the word is used. It's used 424 times in 357 separate verses in the Bible. 
Blood was the sign of mercy for Israel at the first Passover in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. Blood sealed God's covenant with Israel in Exodus chapter 24. Blood sanctified the altar in Exodus chapter 29. Blood set aside the priests in Exodus 29. Blood made atonement for the people of God in Exodus 30. Blood sealed the new covenant in Matthew 26, 28. Blood justifies us according to Romans 5, 9. Blood brings redemption, Ephesians 1, 7. Blood brings peace with God, Colossians 1, 20. Blood cleanses us, Hebrews 9, 14 and 1 John 1, 7. Blood gives entrance to the holy place, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Blood sanctifies us, Hebrews 13, verse 12. And blood enables us to overcome Satan, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. It is a dominant theme throughout the whole of Scripture. The use of blood as a theme in the Bible is everywhere. It runs central to our understanding of how it is that a life is valued and how it is that a life is redeemed. And so God says there should be reverence for the life that is taken, both in nature and then also among humans in verses 5 and 6. He says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. From man, from his fellow man, I will require the reckoning of a life for a man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now the next, these, this set of verses here that, that Moses is giving to God's people is going to make clear that a reverence for the life of a living thing extends in a unique way to mankind. Now, now while man is to be careful to revere, revere the life of animals when taking them for food, he elevates the life of humans by attaching a retaliatory sentence to murder. Now, the rest of the Bible is going to make a real clear distinction between murder and, and, um, and manslaughter, homicide and manslaughter. What is most striking about this passage is not just the stance that God takes against the taking of a life, but the reason that it matters to him. He gives a reason in verse 6. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. In essence, what God is saying here then is that the murder of a human life is, this, is the destruction of his effigy or his image. This is maybe illustrated in a, a modern-day debate for us over the use of a flag. Perhaps this is illustrated by conflict over the treatment of a country's flag. To, to desecrate a flag as an offense to the nation and to the people who have given their lives for it because the flag represents them all. And in essence, God is saying that the, that the human life that is taken is the destruction of his image, and it is an offense to him. To destroy the image of God is offensive to him because mankind has been created as the vice regent, as the ambassador, his emissary to the earth. 
The book of James takes it even a step further, and it says that even to speak in such a way that blesses God on the one hand and then curses mankind on the other is an absolute contradiction in the presence of God. Or we could put it like John the Apostle says in his epistle, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, he says this, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother and has not, uh, that he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. How can you love God whom, whom you've not seen and hate your brother whom you've seen and he bears the image of God? It doesn't work out like that. This is a painful reminder of just how broken the world is in the present stage, isn't it? To destroy the image bearer is to offend the one who is imaged. That's what it comes down to. Whether that's an unborn image bearer or an image bearer with a different skin pigment or language, we can all trace our lineage back to Noah, right? We're all from one family. <laughs> In God's economy, from God's perspective, he's like, how can you hate each other? You come from the same place. I made you. Makes no sense in God's economy. But it's not only a, a painful reminder to us of the world out there, but it's also a painful reminder to us of us in here, right? When we use words to harm or to destroy those on the other side of the political aisle, those who don't agree with our morals or our ethics, our family members, our brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ who do not see things the same way as us, and we castigate them and put them down. God says, hey, I made them. I knit them together in their mother's womb. It was my handiwork that blended the DNA and gave them life. And I made them in my image for my glory. You have no right to speak against my work. That's heavy. That's heavy. It's a painful reminder to us of how broken the world is out there, but it's a painful reminder to us of how broken we are as well. So easily we forget that the people around us bear the image of God. In verse 7, he restates the Edenic blessing to give emphasis to God's purpose in the blessing. It is a blessing to bring life once again and fill the earth. When, when God's rule is fully established on the earth, this blessing actually ultimately finds its purpose. Be fruitful, multiply, fill up the earth, right? And in the final day, at the, at the time of Christ's return, we're going to see that happening in an amazing way. And there will be peace between men, and there will be peace between us and nature, and there will be peace between us and God. There will be no more fear, and every tear will be wiped away. That's what's coming. The blessing that God gives to Noah here is anticipating a future blessing where all of that is fulfilled. 
And so he restates the Edenic blessing. I'm still on track here, God is saying. I'm still headed this direction. We're still going this way. We're going to fill up the earth and righteousness will rule and everything will be exactly as I said it would be. And then God makes a covenant in verses 9 through 17. Now, through the covenant, God will deal with the very real danger of himself. He uses the vehicle of the covenant to deal with the fear that his awesome and holy wrath could just drop at any moment. God is patient. He's willing that none should perish. If you want to check out a portion of Scripture for your own reading, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 tells us that even right now, just like in the days of Noah, God is patiently waiting. The wrath is being stored up. He is patiently waiting. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. He wants everyone to come to him. And he's waiting for that to happen. But he makes this covenant. And before we dive into the Noahic covenant, it's probably good just to take a quick refresher on what exactly a covenant is because it's a strange word to the modern ear. It's, it's good for us to think through that and what does it mean, be reminded of the meaning from the world, world of the Bible. Uh, because even as these things are being recorded for by Moses for the Israelites, they would have understood, because of their cultural context, what the making of a covenant was. But, but we, we don't use that kind of language a whole lot. The word covenant is berit in Hebrew and diatheki in the Greek. It's, it, it is a sacred kinsmanship bond between two parties, and it's ratified by swearing an oath. This is a very widespread custom throughout the ancient Near East and the Greco-Roman culture. So it's a sacred kinsman bond between two parties that is ratified by an oath. Now, a lot of times when we think of covenant, the word covenant, we think of contracts because I think that's our, our world in, in the Western world. Uh, Contracts, though, and covenants differ in a few areas. In terms of initiation, contracts are made by the exchange of promises, whereas covenants are sworn by solemn oaths. So you want to think about the difference between a promise and an oath, right? A promise is, is an exchange between two buddies. Oh, I promise I'll do this or that. An oath is when you put your hand on the Bible and you're standing in front of a judge and there's a consequence for not carrying it out, right? That's the idea. It's, it's severe. It's serious. So there's an, an exchange of promises where, in contracts, whereas covenants are sworn by solemn oaths. In application, contracts are limited by the terms of the exchanged property. Now, this is yours, and this is mine. Okay? While covenants involve an exchange of life instead of this is yours and this is mine. It's I am yours and you are mine. It's the giving of yourself in covenant. Now this covers, interestingly enough, especially in the Middle East, virtually an unlimited range of human relations and duties. In terms of motivation, contracts are based on profit and self-interest, while covenants call for self-giving loyalty and sacrificial service and love. Contracts are temporary, while Covenant bonds are permanent, even sometimes intergenerational. 
means that covenant that you make as a family member can be passed on to your kids, and they're obligated to hold up the promise that was made in this one setting. That's the difference between a covenant and a contract. Now, such distinctions do not imply that covenants are necessarily opposed to contracts, since covenants call for both promise-making and oath-swearing. But there are distinctions, there are differences. Okay, so that tells us that covenants are different than contracts. They're, they're based on relationship versus legality. So what did it actually look like to make a covenant? Well, there, there were these sort of stable elements that were in all covenants throughout the Scriptures. First of all, there was a time of preparation. In order to cut covenant or to make a, an agreement, a social agreement, one tribe to another, let's say, you, you had to make arrangements. You say, I'd like to cut covenant with you, and, 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 and we're going to make this agreement. And you had to get, get together a mediator. You had to gather animals that could be sacrificed. And uh, you needed witnesses from both tribal influences to come and bear witness to the making of this covenant. So there, there was a, a season of preparation, and then there was the calling of a convocation. That is the day that was appointed, you would come together, two parties. So, so let's say, for instance, that, that Fred has a piece of property that I want to buy, and we're in this Middle Eastern sort of nomadic setting, and I would like to, to get a piece of property to graze my sheep on, and Fred, Fred owns the rights to that. I would say, hey, Fred, I, I want to I make a deal with you. I would like to purchase uh, such and such acreage from this border to that border, and, and I would like to pay you $1,000 a month for, for uh, you know, 10 months and, and, and $10,000, and, and then I'll own the property. And Fred's like, that sounds like a good deal. Okay, yeah, you, you can do that. You can buy this piece of property for $10,000. Let, let's cut covenant. So Friday, I'll see you. We'll cut covenant. Uh, you want to pick the mediator? You want I, me to? Okay, I'll pick it. Great. I'll, I'll, I'll pick it. So, so I get the mediator. He's supposed to bring his witnesses. I bring my witnesses. Now, the witnesses are there as family sort of pressure, tribal pressure, right? They're there both to listen to the promises made by the opposing party, but also to listen carefully to the promises made by you, the promiser, so that you know exactly what you've obligated your entire tribe to uphold. Does that make sense? This is why it's relational. This is why it's a, a, a big, big deal. And so I, I would go to Fred and I'd say, okay, um, the mediator's here. The mediator, his job is to make sure that the promises are clear and that, that, we, that we're not giving each other any loopholes. And then I would say, Fred, we would take an animal, we'd cut it in half, and we'd separate the two halves, and then Fred and I would stand toe-to-toe -to -toe in the blood in between the two halves of the dead animal. And what was essentially happening is we were saying, hey, uh, if I don't keep up my end of this bargain, may I be like this animal right here. May I be as dead as this, this animal, right? Then I would make a promise. I promise to pay you $1,000 a month, Fred, for, you know, 10 months. And, and, and then at that time, you promise to give me that property, give me the title deed to that property so I can graze my sheep there. That's how a covenant worked. So we would stand toe-to-toe -to -toe in the blood. I make my promises. He makes his vows, his oath, his promise. 
right? And then we would exchange signs of the covenant. You see this sometimes in the Bible. It was like a, in one story, there's a walking stick that's given. In another story, it's a, a sandal that's given, right? Somebody takes off their flip-flop and says, here, take this. And it was physical evidence that the covenant had been made. Now, this is, this is something we clearly see, actually, in the wedding ceremony. I just did a wedding yesterday. What is happening? The pastor is the mediator of the covenant. The two people coming down, promising their lives to one another, are the covenant makers in the presence of God, and they are supposed to bring witnesses. The witnesses are there to hold them accountable for the promises that they make. The vows are exchanged. The mediator facilitates the vows so that, there's, so that it's clear, so that the terms are clear, so that the, the length of the vow is clear, and then they would exchange signs of the covenant. What are the signs? These rings right here. You have a sign of the covenant that you now make. They exchange rings. As you look on this ring in the years to come, may it remind you of my promise to always be faithful to love you. That's what's happening. Okay, so this is, this is what a, a covenant looks like. There was a time of preparation. There was the calling of a convocation. There was a ritual initiation where, where a covenant commitment was made. Sometimes this was maledictive. Um, or, or, or a curse, and sometimes it was benedictive, a blessing, right? Uh, so a maledictive covenant would be, you know, may I be like this dead animal. A blessing covenant or a, a benedictive covenant would, would be a, a, an oath or a ritual uh, where, where the, the sign of that or the, the celebration of that is actually a, a blessing where you, you eat a meal afterwards and you go, oh, yay, I'm so glad our two tribes are united in this, okay? That would be a, a blessing covenant. So sometimes it was benedictive, and there's implications, guys, uh, for the covenant meal that we celebrate in the Eucharist where God, Jesus says this is the blood of the covenant. You remember that, Right? So this, this idea of covenant carries throughout the Bible. Jesus said this is the blood of the covenant, Matthew 26, 28. Echoes of the words of Moses, uh, sprinkling the blood of the sacrificial animals to ratify the covenant at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24. The oaths are exchanged, the promises back and forth, the signs are exchanged, and then the celebration takes place after the bonds of the covenant are enacted. The idea of eating together was a demonstration of the joy of this union. Now, God makes a covenant here with Noah. You say, okay, well, what, where, where are we headed with this, Jeremy? And you rattle off a whole bunch of stuff that I actually don't care about. <laughs> Trust me, it will all make sense in one second. Here's what happens. The covenant that takes place here between Noah and God is what is called a unilateral covenant. Some covenants were bilateral, which means both parties had to promise something. And some covenants were unilateral, which means it doesn't matter what you do, I know what I'm promising to do. Okay? This is a unilateral covenant, and God is swearing an oath. He's using a, a device of the culture of the time. And he says to them, Verse 9, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the field with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off with the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow, the rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Interesting perspective thing. God says, I'm going to put the, my bow in the clouds, the, the rainbow. It'll be a sign of this, right? And uh, I, I heard one preacher in, in speaking about this who said that uh, from the perspective of the people on earth, the bow is always pointing away from the earth. It's as though God is saying, my, my wrath is pointing away from you right now because of my promise, because of what I promised here. And so uh, he says, I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. When I bring the clouds over the earth, verse 14, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And all the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on the earth. Okay, so here's what's happening. God gathers the parties of the covenant. Noah and God and all the creatures. So you have God and Noah and his descendants, God and every living thing, God and everything in the world that he has made in verse 11. Then you have the sign of the covenant. The Noahic covenant sign is the rainbow. In the, in the Abrahamic covenant, it was circumcision. In the Mosaic covenant or the Sinaitic covenant, it was the Sabbath. But it was the evidence, the tangible physical evidence of the promise that had been made. Then the oath in verse 15. Never again will I flood the earth. There's the promise. Then there's the conditions of the covenant. Who's obligated? Is this a bilateral covenant or a unilateral covenant? It's unilateral. Who brings the clouds? God does. Who puts the bow in the, in the clouds? God does. Who asks for the covenant? No one. It is only God who is acting on behalf of mankind. It is him who is initiating the covenant. God is the one guaranteeing that he will remember the covenant. The covenant is one-sided. It is unconditional. What's the timeline of the covenant? Verse 7, 16 and 17 tells us it is an everlasting covenant. Berit olam in the Hebrew. It is a covenant in perpetuity. So in summary, here's what's happening. God says this is a unilateral covenant. I'm making it with you. It doesn't depend on anything that happens here on earth. I'll never again flood the earth. It's universal. It applies to all of the earth, all of creation, everything that he's made, man, animals, and the planet. It's unconditional. God lays no terms on it. He simply makes an oath that he won't judge the earth in the same way, and it is based solely on God's gracious will to keep it. And it's unending. Guys, right now, you and I are still in the Noahic covenant. We're under the provision of God's protection, and then he says, I won't judge the earth in the same way. Okay, so why does this matter to us? You're like, oh, thank you. Please, get to your point. <laughs> why does this matter to us? 
One, because we're still living under the provision of the Noahic covenant. I think that's important for us to know. But two, because the basis of our relationship with God is guaranteed by the covenant that he made with the blood of the Lamb of God. God has sworn, he made an oath, he made a covenant that if we would trust him to pay for our sin through the death of Jesus, that he would cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. He promised, he covenanted, he made an oath that he would give us a new heart that wants to do his will. He made an oath that he would give us the Holy Spirit and adopt us into the family of God. He made a covenant that he would create good works for us to walk in and represent him in the world. He, he made a covenant that he would raise us from the dead and that we would live with him forever and ever and ever. And how long does the covenant last? It's unending. It's eternal. You see, when God wants us to know something that is sure, he swears by himself. He makes this covenant and he says, and you can trust it because I don't change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can trust it. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, as we end our time here, I ask, Lord, that you would bring your word deep into the innermost places of our heart. That you would shape our reality through the scriptures. That you would remind us how great a promise we've been given in your son. And while we still at this moment live under the benefit of the promise that you made to Noah and to all of creation. Forever and ever, we will also live under the benefit of the promise that you made through your son. And may it cause us to worship with all of our hearts, to lay our lives down for your glory to live in such a way that reflects the value and the worth of who you are. So shape us, God. Mold us as your people. In the name of Jesus, amen. As we head into worship, a quick reminder for those of you who would want to uh, take part in this. There is so much more to this idea of covenant. And tomorrow uh, on Facebook, I plan on posting a, a short video. We'll just dive deeper into the covenants in the Bible. And in particular, this idea of the suzerain vassal covenant and how that plays into our understanding of the kingdom of God. So if you like to nerd out on stuff like that, tune in on our Facebook page tomorrow. And I'll have a brief video there kind of walking you through a few things for those of you who are students. God bless you.